Linux Out Loud is firing up our mics, connecting those headphones as we search the community for themes to expand upon. We keep the banner friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. This week, we're spouting off about the Steam Deck and Valve's Linux Gaming Foray. Let's get into this episode. Links Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitward. And with me today is the photographer extraordinaire of the Tux Digital site and community, Wendy, and the person with a totally, totally unhealthy obsession with OpenSUSE. I'll almost call you a fanatical fan of OpenSUSE, Nate. I don't know if fanatical is right. You're one of those like people who put ketchup on everything. OpenSUSE on all your tech. Open Sousa on almost all of his tech. To be fair, his CNC machine is not going to be using Open Sousa, but that's only because at this point it can't. So maybe you're right. <laughs> huh. Sounds like just saying, Nate. There are a few things I don't have it on. Just a few. His Raspberry Pis. No, wait. Are you running open? Yeah, I do have it on my Raspberry Pis. Okay, so never mind. Commodore 64 is probably the only thing you don't have it on. Besides your CNC machine, as Wendy put it. And the Amigas. Have you tried putting it on, though? I've tried Linux, uh, but it's not going to work. <laughs> I love the hesitation. So now that the trolling of Nate, as usual, is over, uh, <laughs> Wendy, what have you been up to? I have been going through a struggle with my contacts. I had contacts before, through high school, a little bit after that, and then... Once I had to buy my own contacts, I was like, mm, that's a little bit too expensive and I don't want contacts anymore. Then I had kids and I didn't want to deal with contacts by having little kids. And in January, when I went for my yearly eye exam, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to get back into contacts. And the first ones I tried, of course, especially when you're trying them again, you always leave with a trial pair and it was the Bosch and Loam Ultras. And he was like, yeah, these ones are so awesome. Most of my patients like them. These are a monthly, so you use them for a month and then toss them. My eyes were so incredibly sore at the end of the day. It wasn't even funny. But I noticed that we were moving just a little bit too much. And I'm like, you know, these don't work. I didn't even put the contacts in the next day. My eyes are so incredibly sore. And then I tried some Cooper Vision Bioaffinities. I thought they were working fine. They were definitely more comfortable, not sliding around as much as the Bosch and Loma Ultras. And I've been using them since January. And I was constantly rubbing my eyes and having issues and, you know, all these hurt. And I went back to my eye doctor and I'm like, I know I've been using this brand since January, but I feel like I've got sand in my eyes, especially after like the first few days of putting them in. And I'm doing a good job cleaning my contacts. Probably was over cleaning them because I was doing 20 seconds on each side of the contact, then rinsing them with solution, both sides once again before putting them in the case for at least a minimum of six hours for them to do their clean and get the proteins off and all that. I was definitely getting my contacts clean, but still feeling like they were just too rough. And I'm like, these ones apparently aren't working. I think we need to do something else. So they gave me two different contacts to try. And the first ones were the AccuView Oasis. So I picked them up on a Tuesday. And that's been the day that I do most of my editing. The show gets released on a Wednesday. I came home. I took out the Bioaffinities, I put in the Oasis, and I wore them for another seven hours. 
as I did all the editing and the uploads and all that stuff for this very show. And I'm like, oh yeah, these are awesome. They are so comfortable. And by day three, I was like, holy crap, I'm feeling like I've got sand in my eyes again. What in the world is going on? And I determined that in order to get reusable lenses to work and the Oasis are two weeks, you toss them after two weeks, but any reusable lens for me in order to get them to feel comfortable, I have to rub them down before they go in the case. I have to use a hydrogen peroxide solution. So these are ones that bubble. So they agitate the lenses as they clean them. And then before putting them in my eyes, I have to rub them down again. So that's like three separate cleanings. And I'm like, that's way too much work. I don't want to do that. And thankfully, the second ones that they gave me are a Bosch and Lohmann Fuse. So these ones are quote unquote new technology and all of that fun stuff. They're supposed to help with the moisture of your eyes. I'm on day three of wearing these ones. And I have to say they're probably better than some of the other ones. These are dailies. You take them out and toss them every night, which I was kind of worried about the extra garbage that you're generating with the dailies. But they do have a recycle program that you can use, take your contacts in and the little packets that they come in and have them recycled. So that part's awesome. They said to give them five days. I'm definitely not loving them. I can still feel them moving around a little bit on my eyes. And it has to be something for long-term wear. There are Mm -hmm. times where I am at the computer for hours. So they have to be able to be good for a long time in my eyes. And I don't know that these are there yet, but they said, give them a minimum of five days. This is only day three. I got two more days in order to know, like, is some of the discomfort that I'm feeling with them going away? Yeah, they're definitely better than day one, but we're now pretty late in the day. I've had these in for at least 12 hours and they're starting to feel pretty rough and they say they're supposed to last for 16. Could that be because I'm weird and I seem to put like heavy protein deposits down on my contacts? It's also allergy season, so that could be an issue. I don't know. I really want to be back in contacts, but it seems to be frustrating to find a pair that not only feel good at the beginning of the day, but will last through my entire day, especially when I'm staring at a screen for so long. Well, I used to wear contacts for many years, and the last few years of wearing them, I had a real hard time. Much of what you're describing, I had that issue. Even the dailies, by about hour 12 in the day, my eyes were getting scratchy and I had to put on my glasses. I never actually found a solution to that. What I did end up doing is just going and getting LASIK. That's a bit of a financial commitment and not everyone can do that. My eyes have never been better since. I can't really say for sure. I think I've gone through all of those exact same, you know, Bosch and Loom. I didn't do Cooper Vision, but I did AccuView. The AccuView Oasis were the ones that I actually had the best success with. I want to say they were a daily AccuView, but I could be wrong. They do have dailies. I think toward the end there, I had to go with dailies because they were a little bit thinner. My eyes were just, I think they just had it with contacts after wearing them for about 20 some odd years, 30 years, 25. I know for me, contacts were never an option because like Wendy was mentioning, it's just like trying to get through a day without them not feeling like my eyes have sandpaper in them was yeah. just something I couldn't do. So it was always, oh, okay, I made it like four hours wearing contacts for like three years and it was back to glasses almost all the time. So I just stopped doing the contacts because I, I, there was just something with my eyes that none of the contacts that I would try that my doctor would recommend wouldn't work at all. So I definitely feel your pain. The Acuvia Oasis one seems to be the most comfortable even past that 12 hours, but I don't 
don't know how I'll like the data because I've been kind of geeking out on the numbers of those looking at, okay, what is the overall diameter of the lens? What is the base curve of the lens? And I even went as far to go find a calculator to find out, okay, what is the depth of that lens? What is that overall shape of it? And I found that some of the deeper lens feel better. And then I was started looking at the AccuView dailies and I'm like, holy crap, those numbers are completely different as compared to the AccuView Oasis. So if I tried the same brand, is it going to feel as good as this one? It's so frustrating to try and find ones that fit and that are comfortable. And then on top of that, dealing with, okay, you're staring at a screen for a long time and that seems to dry your eyes out more. So if you're already having issues with them feeling gritty or dry, as you're working on a computer screen or staring at your phone or tablet or whatever for a long period of time, then you have that added extra dryness. I'm kind of curious as to what everybody else has experienced in the community. I popped this on Mastodon that I was having issues finding some that work and it seems to be pretty consistent in this community too, not just you guys, but other people that I chat with on Mastodon. I would love to know if somebody found some that actually fit comfortably, of course, my eyes are different. It doesn't mean that your same brand will work for me, but it would be nice to hear some positive stories of, yes, it was a struggle. It took me several pairs to find the right ones, but I finally found them and everything is great. And I've been wearing contacts for a while. I don't know if that's possible. I would like it to be. I bought glasses. I have my prescription glasses, but I bought them thinking I wasn't wearing them that much. So I bought the not as nice lenses. They're a little bit heavier. I didn't go with the thinner, lighter lenses on them. It's not that the frames are all that bad. I mean, they're teeny tiny frames, so they still don't weigh very much. But gosh dang it, I don't want to have to go buy prescription sunglasses again. Yeah, I've never had prescription sunglasses. Oh, that's not true. I did once and I didn't like them at all. Oh, I loved mine. Oh, really? My vision was so bad that I was, um, it didn't work. Speaking as someone who has the prescription sunglasses, Wendy, I totally get what you mean. They are a nice godsend. I know for me, I have separate glasses. I don't have the... the... Right. Mine weren't the transitions either. I had a pair of regular glasses that had the blue light blocking lenses built into them. Mm -hmm. So my day-to-day stuff. And then I had a pair of specific prescription sunglasses. The problem is is when I'm like, oh, I don't need my purse. And I walk into the grocery store with just my wallet. And then I'm like, you dumb dumb, you left your regular glasses in the car and you need to be able to read the signs because I'm nearsighted. You need to be able to read the signs. So I'm walking through the store with my sunglasses on and I'm like, really, I'm not trying to look like the cool kid in town. I just need to be able to read which aisle I'm supposed to go down. I'm definitely the same way. I know for me, sometimes I'll drive into, it's sunny out. So the way, you know, if I'm driving into the sun and stuff, I'll need my prescription sunglasses because it's just easier to, you know, see. Right. I'll get to like work and I'll totally forget that I have them on. So I'll walk in and I was like, why is everything so like you? I have the darkest tint you can possibly get on these glasses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is why I complain about light and dark themes all the time. You walk in and you're just like, Okay, I need to go back out and get what I forgot, which is the regular regular glasses. glasses. (laughs) Yeah. But man, some of those grocery store lights, I'm not going to lie, when you go into them or, you know, any store, those lights, they're just like, oh, God, that hurts. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Nate, you recently did some upgrades to your 3D printer. Were they worth it or not? I would say they're absolutely worth it. So there's this project, and I think I first heard it from Ryan 
on Destination Linux, or I could be wrong. Maybe I'm giving him undue credit, but this thing called Octoprint. I'm not sure if you heard of it, but it uses a Raspberry Pi, which I know is right up your alley, to basically add control and camera access basically to your 3D printer. I can't believe I went so long without having one of these because it's absolutely fantastic. So I have a Raspberry Pi 3. I printed a case basically that bolts onto the underside of the 3D printer, the Ender 3, uses the USB to seal right into the control board. And so I can, through a web client, control my printer so I can even upload files to it so no more messing with the SD card. I can upload files right to it, have it print because the Octopi takes care of that. I can monitor the temperature. I can see like a nice little graph for the temperature. I can flip over and look at the webcam that's on there and see if the printer is you know doing its job properly. It's very awesome. And then what makes it even more awesomer is I can also integrate it into Home Assistant. So I can go to one of my tabs in Home Assistant. I can see the status of the printer like, you know, the temperature of the bed, the print head, I could even see an image or a video stream of what it's doing at that time. And so it's actually, it's, it's really pretty awesome to be able to just keep an eye on my printer in so many other ways. You know, I keep the printer in my studio at Cubicle Labs, and a lot of times I'm in my house away from it. So I can just very quickly just open up the tab that has Octoprint on there, or I can go into Home Assistant and check to see that the printer is behaving as it should. And so that's super awesome. A worthwhile upgrade. I think maybe it cost me, I think the most expensive part on there was the webcam maybe. I can't remember what it cost, but it wasn't bad, but it was the most expensive part, I think, outside of the pie, of course. So that is because you already had the pie or is that a pie that you bought for Jissa? Yes, I already had the pie. Okay, perfect. I have one more pie just hanging out. Although I'm going to free up a pie and use it for another project, but that's another discussion for another time. So Octoprint, very awesome. I highly recommend it. Get used to your printer, and then once you do that, add the Octoprint. I use the Octopi version of Octoprint because that's not confusing at all. You won't regret it. At least, I highly doubt you'll regret it. In fact, you'll probably really geek out with Octoprint. I did another upgrade because I was having some issues printing ABS where the Ender 3 that I have comes with a mat, the printing mat, not mat here on the show, much more useful. And you print to the mat, and it's great for PLA, but it's not so great for ABS because as the ABS contracts a little bit, it'll actually pull the mat up off of the the print surface. So you'll have a little bit of a curve to your parts. For small parts, not a big deal, but for larger things, it is an issue. It was recommended by a guy named Dave, who's a part of the Other Side Podcast Network, that I get a glass plate, a specific glass plate that has like some kind of etching in it. So it helps the part to actually adhere to the old plate better, so it doesn't just fall off. And I tell you what, it made a world of difference for ABS prints. Not all of them, but some in particular, it, it made them flat as they should be. I did have to increase the build plate temperature to 110 Celsius. So it does take a while to get up to that temperature, but then you don't have the same kind of shrinkage and curling that I did previously. I also do some other little tweaks here and there to make it all work. But as of now, I have it dialed in really well. Another print just finished, a fairly large ABS print. I don't have any curling to speak of. At least I can't detect it, at least not with my eye. And I did have to do a brim on it, so it adhered. I find I get a slightly better result if I do that. And so after doing the little finishing to kind of, you know, clean up the edges, it's basically good to go and it's pretty great. And I'm extremely happy with the results. So those two upgrades for my printer has made my printer from being like a fun little toy to a really awesome toy, way awesomer toy. There is a superlative that I can use, but I can't think of it right now. So is this a specific glass plate that is made for your 3D printer or is this a glass plate that you just found and got it at the right size? It's specifically for the, it's a Creality product. It has Creality branding right on there and it's a plate for the Ender 3. I believe the Ender 5 has the same 
footprint. So I think it would work for the Ender 5, but I, I can't say for sure. I didn't look closely at that. But I'm pretty sure you can use it for multiple printers of the same size. Very cool. 3D printing has taken a whole new level of awesomeness now here at Cubicle Labs. So Matt, you are commenting about episode 10 feedback. Were you offended and, and you thrust your head into the pillow and start crying madly? Oh, did I really offend him? No, you didn't offend me. Trying to think of the way to word that. There was a question about why I was using Windows and, you know, not the tools that are available on Linux. Because, well, quite simply, the tools that were available on Linux was not what I was looking for. Totally short version. I believe in that particular episode, I mentioned that I had looked at Waverin and somebody, this particular user mentioned LGOG Downloader. Great applications. I was looking for ones with GUI. I wanted literally a import collection and a button that says download all and I just walk away and it just does its thing. That's all I wanted. Only option available was Windows. Unless I perhaps missed a thing in my search. Maybe LGOG Downloader has a UI. I don't know. I didn't see one in the AUR anywhere. And usually if you can't find it in the AUR, good luck. So for me, those weren't <laughs> options. The only option available was this application on Windows. And apparently the CLI app for Windows that this particular application that I recommended works perfectly fine because another user was using the CLI app for it as opposed to the GUI. So cool props. Again, I'm a tool for the uh, best tool for the <laughs> I'm a tool. There's that too. You are the best tool. <laughs> There's your bad Matt, Wendy. There's been enough bad Wendy's. Might as well have a bad Matt and a bad Nate. Let's all join in this party. Yeah, why not? For me, I will continue to always be a best tool for the job kind of person. I will always recommend using whatever works for the user as opposed to my personal preferences, etc. Because that is not the point. As far as it relates to gaming specifically, I'm about as agnostic as it comes to platform. I'm sitting next to a PS4, an Xbox Series X, a Switch, a Wii U, a PS3, a system running Windows, a system running Mac, and a machine that is currently not just the Steam Deck, but also a laptop that is running Garuda with Heroic, which is using Epic. If that's not broad enough for people to understand where I approach gaming from, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I really don't. Matt, I like how that you look at gaming from a very utility point of view. It's something that I can't do, but I do appreciate the fact that you hold to that for numerous reasons. One, you are a gamer, you are passionate about gaming, and so you so you use the best tool for the job, and it can be any operating system or console or whatever. And I think that's awesome. I find I have a real big hang-up for me personally. I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's probably actually not a good thing. But if I can't get it to work the way I want it to work, I just toss it aside. I guess I don't have that stick to that you do to get to that end result. Oh, no. Like So for me, as an example, I totally respect... Like I know for you, Nate, or other people, are if it doesn't work in Linux, then I just move on. I know plenty of people that's their mentality. And I totally respect that. In this particular case, if you wanted to use the CLI options and go that route because it, that's the way it works on Linux, cool. But that was not what, in this particular case specifically, that was not what I, as a user, was looking for. So I went to the platform that had the option that I, as a user, was particularly looking for. That's my approach with technology in general, though. You know, I know some people get hung up on the ethos and all the other stuff. That's just not my thing. For me, gaming is, it's entertainment. It's supposed to be fun. Why am I going to limit my options on how I have fun in an entertainment medium? That's like, I only go and watch movies at the theater. 
Whereas you can have just as much fun, sometimes more fun with a group of friends having some get together, watching some bad movie as opposed to the, you know, the newest cinematic Marvel masterpiece or whatever. Right. That's kind of the approach I take when it comes because I view it as entertainment. Personally, I'm all about the being able to pause and get up and go to the bathroom. But, you know. (laughs) That's a good point, too, being able to do that. This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your team can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides you with predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. DigitalOcean helps teams regardless of size, whether you're a team of one to a team of 1,000 people. DigitalOcean helps your team grow with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. As a listener of Linux Out Loud and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. In fact, even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. So again, you can get started with your $100 credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux2022. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. All right. So speaking of approaches to gaming and whatnot, the Steam Deck has officially been out for going on month two now. So we're a little into past the month one, little into month two. I was lucky enough, ironically, as one of the first guys on the network to get one. Some people might have uh, rubbed them the wrong way, Nate. Only slightly. (laughs) (laughs) We want to talk about the Steam Deck and kind of Valve's Linux foray for gaming, Linux specifically. Could this potentially be like their last hurrah to try to get Linux in the mainstream, as it were? I can only speak from my perspective. At this point, they've put in a decade of work. The Steam Deck, to me, is just a culmination of everything, that all those little pieces that they put in along the way. If you look at the Steam Machines, the initial release, Steam OS, big picture mode, I'm talking like the originals before it culminated into the Steam Deck. Then you look at all the work they've done on the graphics back end, working with AMD, like all the other stuff that they've done in a Proton, of course, obviously. And all that stuff is a culmination of this to this the pitch that people specifically pc people and this is where i'm trying to get most of these people to understand this is val's version of a console it just happens to do pc things or can do pc things the shipping experience is about the games though what works what doesn't work etc i know speaking for me i found it kind of dope that i just had a hardware that was gaming related that I can plug into a USB-C dock and make a console, and I have over 100-plus games that work just out of the box. That's an awesome console experience, if you ask me. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I know when I bought a Switch, I didn't have a whole lot of games. Guess what? It costs a lot of money to go buy them games. <laughs> so the fact that that 100-plus, you know, it's only a tenth of my Steam library, but cool. Still, nonetheless, the best way I've been able to equate what the Steam Deck is, take the PS3 and the other OS function that originally shipped with the PS3, and that's really what it is. 
And that's how you have to view it in order for like the consumer to kind of understand it. And like the PC technophile group that we tend to be in and that end of the spectrum, that's where it sits. It's a tertiary thing. It's a side thing. It's not the main thing. But if you want to make it the main thing, Valve doesn't care. They have a shipping experience, though, that they want you to have, which is the Amazon approaches like portal into buying more games, you know, because service, but they don't limit you either. I find the discussion around the deck interesting and annoying all at the same time. I think it's interesting that people are expecting it to be a PC that is a console. Almost like they got their wires crossed a little bit. Now, maybe because I'm not a huge gamer. Well, I don't have a Steam Deck yet, so I can't really say for sure. But I was watching your live stream of your experience, uh, mostly. My kids are being very loud, so it's hard to actually hear everything you said. Not that I want to hear most of the things that you say. I was just watching the Steam Deck anyway. It looks to me like a, a very nice, purposefully built appliance that does games. And the fact that you say it happens to do PC stuff also sounds like a bonus, And I guess I don't understand why people would think that a console would make a good PC. Although, I personally like to shoehorn things where they don't belong. So, I would probably do that just because, you know, treat it like a PC, you know, running OpenSUSE. Is the gripe that people have that it just doesn't do PC things well? Or or what do they want to do? Like, they want to compose their next thesis on it and it just doesn't have the right applications? Or what is the rub that some are having about the Steam Deck? From what I've seen, and again, this is just for me personally, expectation. And they don't have a tempered one. So there was this one guy that I won't name, but you know, substantial following. The video had like 35, 40,000 views at the time. And he's expecting to run Call of Duty, like the newest ones, or Warzone, at ultra settings without doing any, hey, look at your Steam library because there's this deck verified thing <laughs> in it. Doesn't even look at that. Goes to the unsupported stuff. Go to your all library. In the Steam UI, there's things that will give you the Steam Deck icon and it'll say it was playable. Everything else is unsupported, so it'll give you a Steam Deck and a question mark. And so they don't know. He goes to the unsupported tab, downloads some games that are unsupported, and surprise, they don't work. So, like, person set up certain expectations that weren't realistic right. because they're not looking at it from a realistic point of view. They're cramming essentially a laptop realistically, like a four core, eight thread, full SOC laptop into a handheld form with a seven inch screen attached to it. That is what it is. You can talk custom and RAM and all that stuff. At the end of the day, yes, it's a PC. I will totally admit, like, from a parts perspective, yes. But then again, if you look at the other consoles, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X, they're all glorified PCs. So I know we've talked quite a bit on how sometimes Linux especially gets a bad rap when people are giving it a review because they're looking at it and expecting it to do the things that Windows does. In this case, do you think that the Steam Deck is going to get a bad review? In this case, it kind of sounds like it did because they're buying this thinking that it's going to be just like their computer and all of the games that they're going to load up on Windows. So now why doesn't this work? Because this is a gaming system that has all of my Steam games. Yes. So here's the thing. I bought a Switch. Same company, Nintendo. Why don't all my Wii U games work? (laughs) Because they're not meant for it. (laughs) Right, great point. Because it doesn't have a DVD drive. Maybe if they have a DVD drive add-on, then you can use your Wii Switch stuff on it. But the point still remains. It's the same thing. 
Yeah, it's Valve. Okay, cool. It's a piece of hardware that PC gaming runs the gamut on as far as what it can and can't do. And it's all based on your machine. This is a standardized piece of hardware that is totally throws the thinking what PC gaming is or acceptable PC gaming kind of on its head. Because PC gaming for a long time has been spec, 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 spec. Give me ultra settings. Give me, you know, 60 FPS, 144 SPS, whatever the current one is, 310 or 240, 280 or whatever. As it goes up, that's always been the mentality. And this is like throwing a wrench in that mentality because it's like, what's your experience that you're expecting? If you're a high-end gamer, the deck ain't going to be for you. Just straight out. I tend to be more in the middle, but, you know, I like tweaking that experience. This is a console that allows you to control the experience, and that's the best way to put it. You want to sacrifice some graphic settings for a better frame rate? You can tweak down to the core what you want to do. You can even get into the total power draw of a CPU for throttling and stuff. It's crazy how deep you can go if you really want to. Now, would you say that the interface itself, I know there's some criticisms, you know, some people say it's meant for hands that are bigger than they have or... It's too small or, or whatever. How would you say it fits in your hands? So like the ergonomics of it, you mean like as the whole unit in and of itself, I'm assuming is what you mean. Right. That's what I mean. Ergonomically. So I've only opened this as of recording this current video. I only opened this last night and I've only had maybe a day with it at this point. Ergonomically, it's fine. If you've used like a Wii U gamepad at all, it's kind of in the same vein. Okay. Like triggers and the stuff on the top. It's a little awkward at first, but it's not like, oh my God, how do I get used to this kind of thing? The trackpads, that takes a little getting used to, not going to lie. The interface, if you've used big picture mode, it is a thousand times better. <laughs> I will put it that way. Okay. There's not a lot of wasted space. A lot of the options to get into stuff is very much hit the Steam. You have the game card, you hit the Steam button, and then it's just one click into more options or wherever you need to go. So it brings up the title of the game card. So you can exit the game. You can tweak the game. You can verify, you know, all the typical Steam you do and like when you right click on stuff in Steam and then go to properties and then dig down into menus. They make it all one quick accessible, which is far different from things like Big Picture or the normal Steam client. The trackpads are interesting. I'll get into those though. So the interface that they use for... The Steam Deck is better than the big picture mode interface. It's an improvement. Yes, it is much of an improvement. There are rough edges like on any, nothing's ever perfect. But if you threw this up on a TV, I wouldn't critique it any more than I would critique like the Amazon Fire Stick UI or any of the other myriad of other consumer devices that have all right looking UIs that are non-tweakable at all. I had a problem. Like I thought that the Steam big picture UI was kind of clunky and irritating to use. And then I used the PlayStation 4, and then I love big picture mode, actually. So uh, it can't be any worse than the PlayStation 4 interface. My daughter has actually been a really big fan of the big picture mode in Steam. That's how she typically likes to use it, even on her laptop. So when I build the living room system, I kind of figured that since it was going to be dedicated just to being a gaming rig anyway... Might as well set it up to use that big picture mode because that's what the kids like to use. What the kids are into these days. That's right. <laughs> what the kids are into these days. 
On that note, the deck UI, or I'm not sure what they're actually called, so I'm just going to call it the Steam Deck UI, is actually going to be replacing Big Picture Mode eventually, from what it sounded like. Oh, okay. According to Valve. It'll take some getting used to, but it's not bad. It's much more organized and ergonomically easier to figure out. Again, I'm talking strictly on deck for this at the moment. You get a deck verified page as the first thing that you land on when you boot up your deck, which is great for a user experience point of view because it's like, hey, these are all the games that work. Don't go to the unsupported stuff. (laughs) So I'm cool with that. But you can tweak that if you want. You can go to your library, like all your games. You can go to the store. You can go to wherever you want as the default experience, which is kind of a nice little Easter egg thing if you dig down deep enough in the settings. I use a lot of Windows games in Steam, and not all of them are officially supported in the beginning, so you have to click on use all in the settings to be able to apply that to all of your other Windows related games, not just the ones that are quote unquote officially supported. So it's kind of one of those use at your own risk, use with your own knowing in mind that some of these may work and some of these may not, by the way, they're not officially supported. You may have a great experience on this game while on this one, uh, not so much. (laughs) You're not wrong. From what I've seen, I could be totally wrong on this, but from what I've seen thus far, there is not a all-encompassing, okay, always use this setting for Proton. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on this. I'm just looking quickly through the settings. I'm not really digging all that deep into them. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that you have to do it on a game-by-game basis. By default, I think there's a system-wide install for games anyway, because I know there are a bunch of games that I downloaded that were not officially supported because obviously I'm crazy like that and like to figure out what works and doesn't work and all that fun stuff. For me, I believe it was a per game basis though. That can be a bit annoying, but I think that's more to define what version of Proton you want to use as opposed to that it doesn't use Proton because there's one game that I have installed that is not supported, but I downloaded it. I've yet to actually play it and I'll just click play and just see what happens. So when you click play, at least on the deck, you'll get like, oh, hey, look, we're looking for particular game templates for the joy pads and that kind of stuff. So there is that. Honestly, I don't think it's that much of a problem. This is doing all the typical stuff it would on when you enable all stuff in for Proton. So like this one's binary domain and it's running through the DirectX scripts and all that stuff now. And that was just with me clicking play. I didn't tell it to use anything. I didn't tell it to use experimental, etc. I honestly don't know on that one, but just from what I'm seeing, again, I totally could be missing. And it's still early days with this being in hand. Of course, you're going to have a lot more time to play with it in using it, see how things work better over the next few weeks to give a better overall review. This is, like I said, just early days. Just figuring it out. Just getting to know the Steam Deck. Oh yeah, definitely. Totally still trying to figure out what is possible on this little system. To be fair, I think it's super crazy that on the last show, you got the email and you ordered it. And on this show, you actually have it in hand. So shipping was incredibly fast once you paid for it. It took a couple of days to actually ship, but once it shipped... I believe it shipped from Illinois, so it wasn't that long. I mean, obviously, given I'm only a couple of states over, my shipping time was actually pretty quick. I was more concerned about who they were shipping for because it was FedEx, so sometimes they like to leave packages, and I wasn't sure what Valve's packaging was going to be like. 
Luckily, <laughs> what Valve does is, other than the giant lithium battery warning, obviously, because, you know, mail that was on it, the only thing that would give it away that's a Steam Deck is if you look at the side, you'll see a Steam Deck logo, but it's not like a big logo. It's not a big, bold, hey, why don't you steal my package thing? Hey, Porch Pirates, check this out. Right, exactly. exactly. But my question is, do you think from the short time that you've been using the Steam Deck, obviously it's been what? 24 hours you've had it actually been playing with it do you feel like it's been it is a good experience like how would you rate the experience compared to when you open up the nintendo switch i had a ton more games so the ton more games but as far as like the user interface the fit and feel the function of it things like that i hate talking ergonomics because it's so subjective so for me, as opposed to the Switch and the Joy-Cons, I'm not talking about if you have like the Horai fight sticks or any of that kind of stuff, but like the default Joy-Con experience is 100% garbage. I hate the Joy-Cons. They're terrible when you are using the thing in handheld mode. There's just not enough substance to them. I would agree. This has nice curvature. The curves are thicker for the palm. So it's not as tight or as flat as the Switch would be. Again, with the default Joy-Cons before somebody rags me on that. Because, you know, <laughs> people be people. Someone's going to rag you on that? Uh, you know, whatever. That's probably the biggest thing. The fit and finish, there's no flex in the machine. Like, it's plastic, but there's no flex. So, like, you try to... I'm not going to bend a $400 piece of hardware, but like you would on a typical, like, laptop screen. You do, oh, is there a wiggle kind of deal? There really is mm-hmm. nothing. Other than the power button probably being a little too recessed, that's really the only issue I've seen thus far. The fan does have a little more noise than most people would probably expect, but you're also running a four-core, eight-thread CPU, that x86-64 system. So how do you want to look at that? Right. It's no different than like a laptop fan running kind of an idle-high position, not like a full-bore gaming laptop where it's like, oh, hey, look, I hear like three fans taking off kind of deal. Okay. Now, there's been some speculation that this might be Valve's final push with Linux. Like if this fails, Valve gives up on Linux. I don't know if that's true or not, but if let's say that is true, do you think this machine is going to be a success, like an overwhelming success? Do you see that there's some things about it that concern you? Or do you think that we're going to call 2022 the year of the Linux gaming machine? That's kind of a loaded question on so many fronts. It's a very loaded question on many (laughs) fronts. I'm a terrible judge of these things. So that's why I'm asking you. Is this Valve's last foray into Linux for like a Linux gaming push? I don't think so. Valve has put in too much time and too much money just to walk away. From what I've seen is Valve is looking as bad of an example as Apple is. Valve is looking for a vertical integration, but still keeping it open, if that makes sense. Makes sense. They want to stay true to the nature of what PC gaming was. We don't care. Here's the default shopping experience. Do whatever the heck you want with the hardware. It's kind of their approach. I know, Nate, you're just going to, you'll probably play around with, you know, the Steam UI thing for about all 10 minutes before you nuke and pave and put OpenSUSE on it. Totally, you're right. They don't care, though. That's the thing. I think they've put too much time, too much software development, too much energy into just dropping Linux. And the reason they went with Linux is because they can control the experience. That's why, by default, the file system is Mm read-only. What they do when they push out an update is it basically nukes and paves the OS. So if you're running Pac-Man in a read-only and you unlock that file system so it's not read-only, all that stuff that you just installed ain't going to be there. That's why they went with Flatpak. App images still work, FYI, by the way, just because of how app images are handled. But that's the mentality they're taking. This is an appliance to them. This is a gateway to buy stuff on Steam. Amazon approach, basically. They're controlling the experience 
of that approach. So this is why they went with Linux. They don't want to rely on Microsoft and Microsoft dictating what APIs, when things get upgraded. Valve wants to push an update to Steam or to Linux in general. They can just be like, oh, here's an update. They control it. There's no pre-approval process. There's no waiting for update Tuesdays like there is in Windows. You know, don't even get me started on Mac and that lackluster experience <laughs> as it released the gaming. It's something that nobody wants to ever talk about. People want to complain about Linux gaming. Go game on a Mac. I know because I just tried doing it not that long ago. I had a few things to say about that. There's loads of fun. A Mac native game can't run because the OS doesn't support 32-bit builds, but it's a Mac native game. Get that one. Well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> and that's on Steam, FYI. And Steam will tell you, oh, your current version of Mac OS doesn't support this because it doesn't run 32-bit games. The next time somebody complains about Linux gaming, go play on a Mac and see how well that works out for you. Well, there we go. I don't think this is their last foray into it, though, really, at the end of the day. I think it's Valve controlling their destiny and the kind of experience that they want as gamers themselves. I don't think they're going to just walk away from it. And I don't think it's going to be not a success either. Am I using double negatives? I think this will be a success just based on the amount of abuse that their servers took on the launch day. They took the Steam store down. There was so much traffic to get the Steam Deck. So they took the Steam servers down. It didn't just take the Steam servers down. It took out the entire payment process too. Right. It's something that's pretty beefy that can take the abuse. I mean, worldwide, number of people that are playing Steam games and they took their payment system down. So yeah, I'm guessing it's going to be successful and it'll be great. I have seen some of the videos where they people tried putting Windows on it and it wasn't very successful. I'm really interested in seeing how this is going to go in the future. Shock. It's almost like it wasn't designed with Windows in mind. (laughs) Yeah. Who would have thought? And so now Windows users can feel the pain of installing Windows on something that's not supported. There you go. (laughs) So Windows users will get to experience what it's like to be a Linux user when things don't work. Then they can blame Windows. And then we can just sit there and look at you and go, "Eh, the hardware wasn't designed for it and walk off. Or you can just use Linux. Or you can just use the thing that it shipped with. Your choice. And walk away. Yeah, I'm excited to get mine. Whenever it shows up, I'm jonesing to be able to get my grubby fingers on it and have some fun with it. Watching your stream and hearing what you have to say about it only adds to my excitement level for it. Yeah, definitely. Anything else? That's about the only experience I, stuff I can give you thus far. Yeah, I think that's good. We can move on. So we actually get into the stuff Wendy wants to actually talk about because she couldn't care less about this. Yeah, pretty much. It's not that I don't find it interesting. I like that Steam is working on this stuff. I like that they're using Linux. I do enjoy some gaming using uh, whatever that tool is called right now. My brain is a little bit fried and that's okay. But in general, it is not the topic that I'm like, oh, yay, about. But awesome sauce for both of you. Not awesome sauce for me yet. (laughs) I don't have it quite yet. This episode of Linux Out Loud is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication, such as master passwords, and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. Say you want that premium account that starts at just $10 per year. What comes with that? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Belt Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, 
plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com T-U-X to get started for free. If you're like me though, you want to show your appreciation for this awesome open source project by signing up for that premium edition, especially since it starts at just $10 a year. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. So while I'm busy diving into the Steam Deck and all the other fun stuff with that, Nate, you're busy diving into other things with costs some money too? Yes. I pick up like strange things, garage sales and whatnot. And a few years ago, 2020, I'm not sure what year it was. Someone was moving out of their house and they had this, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but this Xantrex PowerHub 1800. And they used it for converting solar energy to, to AC. They said it, the batteries are dead in it, but it does work. And I trusted them, gave them 20 bucks, and I thought, great, I'll use this as a like a solar charge controller so I can you know, feed into the grid and everything else. Well, uh, after digging into it for some time, I realized that it didn't do the grid tie. It'd be great for like an off-grid setup, but not for an on-grid setup so much. And so I, this thing just kind of sat. I got to thinking about it again. And by the way, I moved after I'd already bought this thing. The batteries in it were extremely heavy, painfully heavy, insomuch that I think I might have given myself a hernia trying to move it. But I decided I'd dig into it again. I'd look at it and see what I could actually do with this thing. And I needed some extra backup for some hardware of mine, extra power. And since it has a rather large battery bay, I could very easily replace the batteries and just use it like a overglorified UPS. I spent about uh, 300 bucks on batteries for it, which isn't too terrible if you're looking at UPSs. I put those in there and sure enough, everything works great, which by the way, if you ever mess around with batteries, make sure you disconnect the battery bank from the controller. Don't leave it connected when you're trying to screw in the batteries because the angry pixies inside those batteries want to start chooching along. Did you get a little uh, shocked? I did and it was a little bit disconcerting and I didn't fry anything. It just because it was energizing the circuit so rapidly. That's just what happened. I unplugged it and I went to put the batteries in. Well, actually, let me back up here. When I went to put the batteries in, the new batteries I got didn't quite fit. Like the lip on the top of the housing was right at the width of the batteries I bought. And I thought, oh man, I didn't actually measure the battery size. Anyway, so using a uh, some PVC pipe, I just kind of bent, like put a little pressure on it so it could, the batteries could actually go then go inside the housing. Wasn't a big deal, but I felt pretty stupid there for a little bit. And this all happened today, by the way. I got the batteries in, wired it all up. Initially, the thing didn't seem like it wanted to wake up. I mean, it did wake up, but didn't really wake up. It wasn't supplying power, but I guess it was doing, going through some sort of a self-check. And once it was done through that self-check, it was supplying power. I put my computer hardware on there. And sure enough, it does act like UPS. But the time between the bypass and using the inverter, there's a just a little bit of a gap. Unless if the thing has the tolerance for that gap it's going to shut off or restart that machine. So I still have to put a UPS on there, like a, a small UPS, but just enough to basically kind of cover that little loss of power. Because it isn't quite a UPS. It's not an uninterrupted power supply. It's just a battery backup system. So outside of that, it's great. I'm glad I have it. Now that gives me several hours of backup time now when I do lose power, because I will lose power at some point. And just another something else to have just backed up. And I like to keep my IT equipment, my computery stuff nicely energized. So I'm very happy about it. The great thing is, it's not just sitting on the floor out here in Cubicle Labs. It actually has a home now. It's doing a thing. And it wasn't a waste of $20. I mean, come on, to be fair, $20 isn't a whole lot in order to pay for this thing in general. Though I would say that's a lot to spend in batteries. So it depends on how much battery capacity you have in general. But this gives you several hours. Yes. I'd say that's 
pretty good on battery size. We were recording a show and you were in the middle of losing power on and off not too many episodes ago. So this is kind of the nice, hey, safety zone. I have enough battery in order to completely finish a show to finish whatever I'm working on and not have to worry about that. That's super cool. Yeah, that would actually keep my computer over here running for probably another day, actually. There are two 12-volt batteries that are larger than a car battery inside of it. And each of those are 100 amp hour. Wow. It would run something for a long time. So it's 200 amp hours at 12 volts. So 2,400 watt hours of power, essentially. And I think it's not quite like that because of the amount of draw and everything else. It depends on how much you're drawing. It's a lot of power. It'll last a long time. The batteries are extremely heavy. They're larger than the batteries that I have in my truck. That's absolutely crazy. Yeah. And they're deep cycle batteries so that if they are discharged, it's not going to destroy them. Nice. Wendy, I understand that you are getting into the 3D printing game. Is this true or is this just a vicious rumor? No, this is very true. I finally went ahead and did it and I ordered our 3D printer. I went ahead and went with the Creality Ender 5 Plus. I'm like, if we're going into this, I'm going all in. I want one that's going to be, this one's considered a large format printer. It'll do uh, just over 13 inches by 13 inches by 14 inches. Oh, yeah. So it can do some pretty large prints on it. This one comes with the built-in leveler for it so it'll run some pre-checks before it does any printing to make sure everything's nice and level. I have no idea, no idea where I'm going to put this thing because it is a fairly large 3D printer. I'll figure that out once it gets here. It's ordered. I don't know. I did order it with some PLA at the same time. It's just black and white, pretty basic, but it's enough to kind of get us started for us to kind of play with it. I've been going through Thingiverse and sort of adding things to my save list. But what I need right now really is tips. You gave some awesome tips earlier in the episode when it comes to what are some of the upgrades that I'm going to do a little bit later. I love this Octopi thing. But right now I need some just getting started in 3D printing tips. We've never had a 3D printer. I've never printed anything well, I mean, I've printed all kinds of things on my regular printer, inkjet and laser, but I've never used a 3D printer. So I've got a lot of research to doing, a lot of figuring things out. I know last week you mentioned an application that you were using for slicing. So you might want to remind me of what that is, but I need all the tips. I need all the 3D printer tips that I can get right now. It is that time again. Take us into game of the week, Matt. This particular game this week is actually one that I'm finally finishing playing. I'm on the last two chapters, luckily, uh, at least from what I've learned from howlongthebeat.com, which is a nice, lovely utility to figure out how long some of these games are going to supposedly take me to play. It's kind of how I judge some of my games sometimes. This game is called A Plague Tale Innocence. This is a game set in the 14th century around like 397, 398, 1397, 1398, sorry. It takes place, concentrates kind of on the Black Death and it's kind of a morbid game, not going to lie, but it has interesting elements of fantasy and deals a lot with uh, alchemy and it's, it's just a very story-focused game, which is why I like it. A lot of stealth, a lot of different kind of mechanics. It's not a typical action-adventure game. It's a lot more stealthy, a lot more running gun, a lot more distracting the enemies and sneaking biome and that kind of stuff. It does have its actions, areas, and segments. 
if you're not a fan of rats, this will not be your game. And I will just leave it at that. This is a very rated M game. A lot of bad imagery as far as death and kind of that era of time as it relates to it. So you'll see a lot of things that are quite violent (laughs) or the result of that violence, I should say. You won't actually see a lot of the violence. Well, I kind of figured there'd be rats involved when you mentioned that this has something to do with the Black Plague itself. Those two things kind of go hand in hand. But it's nice when you warn us ahead of time that this is not a family game. I mean, to be fair, most of your games are not. We do every once in a while get some fun family-related games. But when people are listening to your game recommendations, for the most part, it's considered these are adult games, not family games, and less specifically mentioned as such. Yeah, definitely. I've been playing this on the Steam Deck, ironically. Oh, well, good. I wanted to see what that experience was. Anywhere between 45 and 60 on ultra settings. I have another machine that, if we're looking at spec, has more RAM. I have 32 gigs in it. This is the workstation machine that I had Ryan upgrade. That's running a four core, eight thread Intel second gen i7 and a dedicated GPU on an SSD. And I can only get at best anywhere between 45 and 60 on ultra settings on a full blown 17 inch workstation. (laughs) I'm getting that on a seven inch 1280 by 800 portable. I was like, cool, I can play my story-focused games on the go now. It's a fun game. It's If you're not into escort missions, this might not be the game for you, though. It's a typical style of game play that might not fit for everybody. Yeah, I don't think I'd be buying this game just watching through some of it. That's some serious nightmare fuel right there. <laughs> Given the time, though, that is very much a time of... It's amazing we made it through. <laughs> Given the time frame that the game is representing, the imagery and that kind of stuff does make sense, though. The subject matter is appropriate to what the game is presenting. But there are nice aspects to it. There's like a a family dynamic to the story. Like the story is the motivator. I'm not going to lie. So there is a family dynamic and growing like a kind of a coming of age tale through all the trials and hardships and all the other stuff. There is a nice story in there, but there's a lot of bad, dark things, too. Yeah, I can see that. Now it's your turn to toss in your two cents on today's topic. Hit the discourse forums, uh, drop us a line under this video, or you can contact us by using the contact form by visiting dlnextend.com contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links at the bottom of the show description and find other great shows across the network like Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, like Saloon, and many more at tuxdigital.com. You can also show off your love for your favorite podcasts and shows on the network by going to the Tux Digital merch store and grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric I Pause My Game to Be Here shirt, my personal favorite. As always, we thank you for joining us, and we'll be back next week with another awesome episode of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banner friendly, conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. There you go. I just want to say I feel like a big dummy because I was actually talking muted about the 3D printing stuff. And then when he transitioned it to Matt, I'm like, oh, I'm a moron. Well, yeah. It happens. I think it was sometime last week that you had like thrown it to me or something. And here I am talking and it's muted. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm dumb. I actually left that in the last episode. It'll be like, hey, yeah, I was talking muted. (laughs) That's funny. So 
Yeah, it happens. You but know. anyway, I was going to say, you really stepped it up. That's an awesome printer. That's me a good time right there. I cannot wait for this to get here. I cannot wait for this to get here. It's got a lot of extra fancy things on it that some of the other ones didn't have. But I had the budget for it in order to kind of, I guess, splurge a little bit more on my 3D printer. And this had some of the things that I was like, if I'm going in on my first one, these are things that I wanted to have. What's amazing though, I don't know if this has a glass kit too or not. I didn't look. Yes, you can get the glass printing surface for this printer. I was looking it up. I bought it directly from Creality 3D, their official website. And so oh. it says it's shipped. I have no idea when it's going to get here because the shipping information hasn't updated yet. But when it does get here... I'm probably going to set it on my desk. I had to clean my desk off first, but I'll probably set it up here so there's a comparison in size to my monitors and all of that to actually get a good view of it. But I don't know where to put it, so it's going to be stable for printing. I definitely don't want it on my desk because I would like my desk to still go up and down as I'm working and doing different things. Sometimes I want to sit, sometimes I want to stand. And I don't want to be like, oh, I can't move my desk right now because something's actively printing. I don't know where I'm going to put it. It's going to go somewhere. I just don't know where. I think it'd be good like in the kitchen or living room. I'm kidding, of course. I don't have enough room in my kitchen. I may not even have enough room in my living room. I literally have no clue where this beast of a 3D printer is going. No clue. When I'm at glass kit, I mean like an enclosure to block air around it. I don't know if it comes with something like that. I saw the glass build plate for it. And that looks exactly like the one that I have on mine. I've seen the bag one that kind of goes over it, you know, the, the fabric, the one that's fire resistant one that can kind of goes over it. I don't necessarily like that one just because you can't see into it as well. I was doing some different looking on different ones that you could quote unquote pre-buy that are acrylic and they're absolutely ridiculously priced. So I kind of think the route I'm going to go is to buy some plexiglass, cut it and build it myself. One of the nice things in buying the plexiglass and then buying the plexi glue is it should be the outer area should be one completely sealed case. And then of course, you know, you have to build a door onto that. I don't know. We'll see. I'm not that talented when it comes to power tools, so I don't know. Figure it out. I'm not sure, but you probably could just... It doesn't have to be sealed. It's just to block the air and maintain temperature. But when you get it, you have to figure it out. I wonder if you could just put the plexiglass right in the channel in the outer part Maybe. there. Might be able to, because it kind of looks like that's an option. It wouldn't solve for the top, but it would at least solve for like air drafting through it. That's the important part. So when it comes to doing the enclosures on these, I worry about the extra heat around the board causing it to not last as long. Is that typically an issue with 3D printers? Should I think about moving that panel outside of the 3D printer housing itself? You're concerned about the heat tearing it up or what are you? I'm just worried about the heat over time degrading the board. I wouldn't worry about that too much. Okay. No, you wouldn't have to worry about that because the heat's not actually happening at the board. The thing that gets stressed would be the actual stepper drivers themselves. But quite frankly, those things are easily replaceable. So I, I wouldn't worry about that. Especially on this brand, because it seems like it's so easy to just replace whatever part breaks, that specific part. That's what's nice about the Creality line is as close as you can get to an open source platform. It's not the best platform. Like it's not the most rigid, the most highest quality, but it is like if you factor in everything as far as like 
repairability, parts availability, customizing, everything else. Hey, Wendy. Yeah. You might want to hit the stop recording button. Oh, uh, maybe. I started doing that and then got sidetracked.